Hi, I'm Ruthi Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? Thank you for joining us for season two. I'm a writer and I love to find out about what passions people are pursuing and also what makes them tick. The podcast is for those who are reckoning and tired of being told that you can only have this one focus, just one thing that makes you you. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone who breaks these lines and who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Hueti Hali Selassie, a communication specialist who has spent a lot of time understanding how to navigate grief. We've been friends ever since we joined the BBC as trainees well over a decade ago, and you're one of the most inspiring people that I know. You're also the first person to have introduced me to the delights of Injera and Ethiopian food, so thank you very much for that. Now, you are incredibly proud, and rightfully so, of your heritage, but can you tell us a little bit more about being a daughter of the diaspora? It's an interesting one. I am very proud of my heritage, and I don't think I would be who I am if I didn't have that cultural heritage that I do have, hailing from Ethiopia. But I've been reflecting more over recent years as we kind of collectively, we've all been thinking about coming from diverse backgrounds and having sort of different family setups. And I've realised that on some levels, it's a wonderful richness to be a daughter of the diaspora. But on other levels, it's a bit like the black tax in a way, in that you have so many more responsibilities, both cultural and financial, that people from other backgrounds simply don't have. I've had quite a few bereavements in the last two or three years. And on top of, you know, what it is to lose someone and the sadness and all of that, for my family and for my situation, that has meant having to kind of then immediately find money to fund at least one, if not two, return tickets abroad, post-COVID flights are really expensive, getting visas, sorting accommodation, like helping contribute towards the funeral expenses, which you would have to do anyway, wherever you were. The requirements are so much more. And then if you add into that the mix of, oh, well, you're perceived as having a good job and living abroad, then you're perhaps expected to contribute slightly more to the pie or less or whatever. And I realised, gosh, that's something that my Indigenous, for want of a better word, friends don't have. There's a responsibilities that they don't have and things they don't have in sort of their, what do they call it, emotional workload. They don't have that as another thing on their to-do list to do, as it were. So I've been thinking about that in, in many ways. And it brings richness, but it also brings a higher level of responsibility, I think, in some ways. And so how do you marry that conflict? Because it often means that actually you're tapping into a sense of belonging in in that, as you say, you've got that degree of privilege or it seems there's a perceived privilege in one sense, but then in the UK, for example, because that's where you and I both are, we also don't have privilege in another sense because of our heritage and the colour of our skins and we come from different backgrounds here. So marrying that conflict, it feels like there is constant tension, as, as you suggest how how to move through it I'm not sure I have married it together I think I just became aware of it in that sort of I don't know there's a certain point in your life when you also realize gosh the friends that I have that have managed to for example buy property by their early 30s there's that moment where you think oh maybe they're just better at saving than me and then there's the moment where you go oh no the bank of mum and dad has intervened and they've either got a deposit or support or whatever it is and then you realize oh I'm in a different situation and I think it's more that that I've realized oh that's different I occupy a different space and I have different challenges and potentially advantages. And I think it's just a realisation that it's different. I mean, the the reverse of that or sort of another side to that is one of my closest friends who I went to school with, who is English through and through and 
she told me when we were both 30, she said, um, well, I discovered that she'd never held a small baby. She'd never been to a wedding and she'd never been to a funeral. Now, for me, that was unthinkable because I had held countless babies. I had been to countless funerals and countless weddings. I couldn't even conceive that this girl that I had grown up living three streets away, gone to the same school, her circles were so much smaller so that if somebody in her immediate family hadn't died, and I mean extending to kind of aunts, uncles, grandparents, she hadn't been to a funeral. Nobody in that circle had had a baby. It wasn't until her sister had a baby that she held a baby. Um, and therefore, she hadn't held a baby. And the same with, you know, so I was like, oh, my, how is that possible? So it's like we lived in these parallel but very, very different worlds. So, yeah, there are different sides. There. I can see you're looking puzzled am by that. Well, yeah, because you're saying, you know, there is that, that degree of commonality in that, you know, you're the same age, you're living mm. in the same neighbourhood. You know, that's where you've grown up. And to be perfectly frank, I hadn't thought about it, but you're right, actually. There are lots of experiences which it's hard to talk to other people about because they don't get it. They don't feel it. They've not had it. But then it's, it, yeah. it happens the other way around as well. And it's we all have our individuality. But, yeah, like this diaspora, it's not a challenge. Yeah. I don't even know what the word is. This being... It's just different. A very early memory I have is of my mother taking me to, maybe I must have been five or six, around that age and a friend of hers had lost her husband and she said we're going to go and visit them they've been bereaved and there's a little girl there who's lost her dad and so I knew I had to go and play with her and be very nice and all the rest of it but I was always taken into those spaces of grief because that's what we do culturally so I found that since kind of adulthood mid-20s and onwards I'm quite comfortable in getting close to people who are grieving because culturally that's been instilled in me. I'm not stuck in this space of, oh, what do I do? Do I, do I text them? Do I call them? Do I go around? Is that intrusive? As an Ethiopian, it's somehow kind of in your blueprint. You know that you show up at their house with food <laughs> and you're just there. And so because that's sort of instilled, I find it much easier. So I found that in those spaces where that happens around me, I'm much more comfortable simply because I was sort of brought into those spaces and kind of inoculated against it and actually I realise it's not particularly difficult you just kind of have to show up and you don't have to have all the brilliant philosophical answers you just kind of have to show up and maybe help with the washing up or help what needs doing and kind of just be there so in that way some of those things are really useful kind of life skills of you know when you've been around people through the rawness of of very immediate grief it also gives you a perspective of oh, okay Anything else that's happening, you know, it's not the end of the world. You can cope with this. People can cope with that. People are resilient. People live through stuff. And I think there is, there's lots of richness that happen as well, as, as well as having to sort of fork up for expensive flights here and there when things go wrong. There's a wider perspective and your circles are much wider, I find. It really is a sort of an expansion. It's not necessarily a negative thing. It's just something to be aware of, I suppose. But I'm just going to pick up on that element of grief in that you're mm. comfortable with the uncomfortable elements of grief mm. but because your circles perhaps are much wider and you have people from varying heritage backgrounds experiences when you come to them when they're in a grieving mode perhaps and they are perhaps from a community that's more awkward with that element of grief mm. how do they embrace you or do you have to navigate past that moment of awkwardness because for them it's an uncomfortable uncomfortable rather than uncomfortable comfortable 
I don't think I have had to embrace awkwardness because often they're quite alone. So they actually just welcome anyone showing up and not being afraid. And I think what's often really hard when you are grieving in a society where people aren't that comfortable to get close to you is then you have to almost reach out and say, please do come close. We need the support. Um, I remember an English friend saying to me not so long ago when her father died that lots of people in the village sort of came, knocked on the door, left a casserole dish in the, on, the, on the front door and kind of ran away or put a card and ran away. And she said her and her sister was almost sort of chasing them down. Dark, hello, we're at home, you can come in, we'd like to see you. And people were really awkward. So I've never found that people have pushed me away because often that space is not very occupied. So they're actually welcoming of another human being just showing up. And it's never with an expectation. It's just, if you want me, I'm here. I can come and do this or this or this. And then people can do what they need. And do you think that's something that's become... I guess, more prevalent or something you've been thinking about more so since the pandemic? Because, you know, just had to say, that brought death to a lot of people. Definitely something I've thought about since the pandemic because I never thought I would say that I missed funerals, but I did during the pandemic because we lost people during the pandemic and then I couldn't book a flight and go and see them or go and see with grieve with their families. I was left sort of grieving behind a, a Zoom screen, which I found really unsatisfactory. So I definitely reflected on it more. And yeah, the pandemic really did bring us into grief for people that we lost and also grief for experiences that we didn't have and grief for the life that we used to have and the the ability to see people and do things and all of those things we was, were stripped away from us completely. So yeah, it was definitely a time for reflecting on all of those things and ultimately the value of them and what we missed and yeah, kind of a recalibration. I mean, I've done a lot of stories around what makes a good death, but what makes mm. good grief? That sounds slightly ridiculous. I might change that because you have that phrase, good grief, where people use in a slang. Yeah, there is. No, but there is a book called Good Grief, isn't there? I think there's a book called Good Grief. If not, then maybe it's the one we're going to be writing. But what does make good grief? I think, I think it's all very personal and I think you can't prescribe it for anybody. But I think it's, at least for me, it's being allowed to take that space and sit with the grief and process it. And for me, that's been sort of very coloured by how Ethiopians grieve, which is collectively, which was just a lot of weeping, a lot of crying, a lot of spending time together. But it's not this sort of, I kind of want to say monosyllabic, it's not this kind of permanent wailing at all. You come together for several days and the traditional mourning period is 40 days, but not all of that time is spent weeping and wailing. A lot of that time is remembering the person, is being very loving towards one another, eating together, sitting together in the evenings, people telling funny stories and jokes and kind of keeping people going. The whole spectrum of life kind of happens around you. And I think the main thing is in our culture is not to allow people to be alone in their grief. I think people are often afraid that if they start crying, they'll never stop crying, for example. The truth is that if you have some time weeping, you do get tired. You know, there is a sort of physiological physical process of expelling the tears and there's only so much you can cry and then you get tired and dehydrated but there's also a release and then there's a time to sit quietly and reflect and eat and be with others and it's sort of a process so I think anything that doesn't stifle that process that you're allowed to have that space and of course grief isn't isn't linear it's not as if you if you sit for 40 days they'll be done there'll be times in the future a year months years down the line when it's more grief so I think good grief is whatever whatever that person 
needs and however they need to grieve that loss so that at some point in the future they can remember the person with tears but also smile at good memories and and what the legacy that person left and be grateful for it as well. And picking up on that, so in my culture, and I come from Gujarati Jain um, Indian culture, kept with a bit of Kenyan in, we have certain rituals, we have songs, like we'll come together to sing. Is that something that you have within yours? No, I don't really have songs. I come from an Orthodox, an Ethiopian Orthodox tradition. So there are liturgies and rituals and prayers that happen, which are mostly with the clergy. And they come and do that in your house when the body's still in the house and... Then on the third day, I could be getting strong, and then the 40th day, and then you mark kind of six months, one year, and then every year until 14 years. So it's not so much about song that I'm aware of, but just marking those dates and lighting candles and sitting together, it allows a sort of marking of time. And the fact that it goes on for 14 years, so that you mark the anniversary every year for 14 years, that allows people to also think, I don't have to be done with this in a week or a month or whatever. There's going to be more processes, more time to sort of process this. And maybe in some way, it's a sort of cultural wisdom rather than directly from religious doctrine. But within the 40 days, the six months, the one year, those anniversaries is sort of baked in the requirement, as it were, to feed the needy or feed the homeless, which I've thought is quite a neat way of ensuring that people who need it get fed, because of course everybody has at least one or two relatives who's died within the last 14 years. So it seems kind of meaningful and it seems useful and it seems in some way it's meant to be for the benefit of the soul of the departed, but it's also for the benefit of those who are around us and in need. You know, that speaks to me. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Like we've just literally had a mini, is it a mini deaf cafe that where you have these sort of conversations? <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we've had this conversation. And now you and I both know what each other wants when we move on. <laughs> but yeah, come to my house with food. And Thank you. you. <laughs> come, come and sing at mine. So it's all good. One thing that you've been quite open about is the benefits of therapy as a I. But mm-hmm. let's explore that a bit more in terms of why are you such an advocate of therapy and also bearing in mind quite how wide the field is you know what would we mean by that in that makes USC USC I just think it's always useful to have a space to step out of the day-to-day and consider what's going on with you on the inside and I think what a professional therapist counselor whoever that might be brings is that being withdrawn from your life, being professionally trained and able to maintain boundaries and look out for your welfare and stuff. And I just think it's really useful to do that work. Years ago, I did a bereavement course at an Anglican church in London. And there's a wonderful lady who used to run that called Jane Ungen, who has passed it on to someone else now. And she spoke about being aware of what's in your emotional store cupboard and it's not necessarily about removing things or putting them in or out but if you imagine a cupboard that is neatly neatly organized you kind of know what's in there your tins are there your packets are there your pasta or whatever it is baked beans or whatever spices you've got that are there but when it's not organized anytime you open it all the stuff can fall out and fall on your head basically so it was just about being aware of what is there and what your triggers are and what your issues are and then you can be more mindful of that as you go through the world so I kind of think of it as that way as a kind of almost like emotional laundry I think I've stolen that from someone just kind of knowing what's in your store cupboard because I think so many of us 
have no idea what triggers us, have no idea what causes you to lose your temper or to burst into tears or to get really upset for no particular reason. And it's usually something that's happened to you in the past that isn't processed. Maybe it's maybe it's a thought to think about that and, and see what you can do to address that so that you live your life in a less anxious, distressed kind of state and then you can get more out of it. Yeah, I just think it's one of the things that is very useful to a lot of people. I quite like that analogy with the cupboard because also it just made me thought sometimes mm. you can think that everything's in its place but then say for example there's an earthquake or something that's out of your control mm. doors might be closed but that shuddering that yeah. shake will have shifted things everything comes out exactly and that's why where you often find people may kind of break down at a point when you're not quite sure why but it's often the accumulation of things that have gone on top and on top of something else and then it's just too much for them so yeah, I'm a great believer in kind of working on yourself, doing therapy, doing meditation, doing whatever it is that people need to bring themselves into a calmer and kind of more optimum state. A new term that mm. I've come across, which is that uh, process of restorative practice. And I've come across that from having been in places where people of colour tend to congregate because we're feeling mm. that we don't know where else to go. And it feels like mm. that... The idea of restorative practice is, it's not new. It's something that's coming through generations. But it's something that we've lost. And it feels like therapy falls into it, but therapy seems to be a far more westernised term. Restorative practice, do you mean by that things like meditation and yoga and, and to a degree, silence or what do you mean? To a degree, yeah. different things. So I ended up going on a course. It was a brilliant roots course. And it was run by a woman called Gaylene Gold, who hadn't come across before, amazing figurehead. And she brought people from different ethnic minorities together. And we just tried different things whether it was dancing whether it was sewing like I'm the worst sewer ever probably end up like stabbing myself but do you know I mean let's try something that's mm. different if you say to me mindfulness I always get slightly stressed because I'm like god I'm crap at mindfulness but if you said to me drink going right. do some doodling that would be a form of restorative practice restorative okay yeah how interesting cooking for example you know going back to ah, okay so when I say that to you now is that something that's feeling familiar it's definitely a new term I think there probably are restorative practices for all of us um, but again I think that's about getting to know yourself and slowing down and thinking gosh when I do this I'm calmer I'm more myself or when I do this I'm not I remember years ago saying to the counsellor I had you know I know when things are going a bit haywire in my routine I know that if I'm not sleeping and I'm surviving on caffeine and, and caramel popcorn things are not going to go well it's like sugar no sleep caffeine not great you know so I think we all know what we need to be okay as it were and I think you're right it is about finding that restorative practice and also finding the thing that's not intimidating. So if mindfulness is intimidating for you, find what isn't intimidating. And that might be sewing or knitting or drawing or, or doing things with your hands. I've recently taken up, taking, I used to take Play-Doh into all my Zoom meetings because I get really bored just sitting there. I'd either doodle and colour in or I'd have Play-Doh because I concentrate better when I'm doing something with my hands. So were you creating art? What happened with the Play-Doh? I'm intrigued. No, it was definitely not art. It was just Play-Doh. I make shapes of it and roll it and just find that quite therapeutic. Well, I was going to say, when did you realise um, Play-Doh's your thing? It might have been a counsellor that I spoke to some time ago, or it might have been she suggested colouring and I thought of Play-Doh. I can't remember. It might have been me. It might have been her. But a couple of years ago during COVID, I thought I was in a lot of really long Zoom meetings that, I didn't necessarily feel I'm, I needed to be in. <laughs> so I felt like I'm not here to actually contribute, but I have to be on the call. How can I keep myself in a more relaxed state? So I had all little pots of Vado. We ought to say other moldable <laughs> doughs are available. <laughs> 
absolutely. Yes. But that's the thing. I'd heard of like Lego play before. Like it is a mm. thing, but I just never heard of Play-Doh. And it, yes, it just makes mm. so much sense. It's something else that I also wanted to sort of ask you on there is we talk about therapy. We've talked about grief and, and death and embracing this. When I think of you, like resilience comes up quite a lot. Like you have gone through quite a lot. You do give a lot to communities. I've seen you with younger journalists, for example, because we had quite a strong foundation in journalism. What parts of you do you tap into when you're facing a testing situation? Or is it something that's automatic now? I'm not sure what parts of me I tap into, but I certainly am quite strategic about, okay, now I need more sleep. I need more water. I need more movement. I need more time in nature. I'm very lucky I live on a garden square, which is gated, so I can just go in and walk, and there's not a lot of people there sometimes, especially in the evenings. I can spend time around tall and mature trees, which I love. Writing, journaling is very important to me, um, especially when I'm going through times of challenge and trial, as is meditation. That's very important. Prayer. So those things are there, and those are very important. Nutrition is really important when you're going through stressful times. I actually eat regularly and eat kind of well, nutritious food. Those things are kind of the base. And then I might think, okay, do I need more? Do I need a short course of counselling at some point here to have a, a sort of release button? So those things. And I think I am very aware of a very strong tradition and heritage I have of sort of amazing trailblazing women in my family line, both from my mother and both of my grandmothers, both maternal and paternal, were all incredibly resilient, strong women that lived through so many things that nothing I've lived through has ever has <laughs> ever scratched the surface of the kind of things that they had to do. You just kind of think, you know, I've been here before, I'll get through this. And also the collective thing, there's been so many people that have gone through so many things and survived. The kind of the, the wider human spirit, I think, is very inspiring and very grounding. Being outside, at water as well, I'm a big believer in swimming in the sea and lakes and aquaerobics has kind of saved my life over the past couple of years. It's been a lifesaver, both the movement in water, the feeling of water on your skin very much brings you into the present, um, which is really important. And the community of the ladies who do aqua with me who have been really inspiring. So those are some of the things. And then sharing with people who love you, your friends and the family members that you're closest to, those are the things. But also I think I'm just someone who doesn't have it in my mind to give up. At times I can be a bit harsh on myself and others who <laughs> want to give up because I'm just like, that's not even an option, let's move on. You have to start again, you have to do it again, you have to try again, you have to get through it. So I think resilience is key in that and you get older, you realise that's what makes the difference between success and not success or not succeeding and not succeeding is resilience rather than brilliance or being the most the cleverest person in the room. If you're the person that's willing to try 20 times, 25 times, then you might be the person that's going to succeed. How do you make sure you're allocating the time in order to invest in these tools that help you with the resilience? I think the key thing is that you're not going to do all of those things every day. Okay. <laughs> so you're not going to get to do all of those things every day. I think it's just picking what you can do. Like, how do I get through this morning? What do I need this morning to get through it in a reasonable way? What do I need during my lunch break or in the middle of the day? What do I need at the end of the day? And so just try and think, okay, this week I'm going to. And I sometimes have this big planner where I'll just be like, this week I'm going to make sure I get my two litres of water, make sure I meditate every day, make sure I spend some time outside every day. That was a key thing for me during lockdown because I work from home. And I live in a basement flat with not a lot of natural light. So I'm like, okay, 
I have to, in between the madness of the seven hours of Zoom meetings, I have to get out during daylight. Started early and didn't finish till five. I didn't get out till five, but sometimes would happen. It would be dark the whole time. Things like that, that I would just put in like five things that I had to do. I had to meditate. I had to get out during daylight. I had to get some movement in. I started taking meetings where I didn't have to take notes. I would do them on Zoom whilst walking in the gardens outside. So look, I had to build in where I could. Can I get to an aqua class today? Yes. You know, do I have to drive across town to do it? No, or whatever. There are different things. So I don't think you, ha- you, can, you can do all of it, but you can do some of it. And you can think of it as, as in a week, in this week, to be saying, I need one social activity. I need to be able to watch two episodes of that series that I really like on Netflix or try and read this book before I go to sleep. Just little things. It's something to give you that boost to say, OK, I can get through today. I can get through tomorrow. I can get through the week. Little things. <laughs> and Play-Doh. So it's USC that's been basically making sure that Play-Doh stays in business. But <laughs> you're going to have to find some other providers of, of multiple plays or whatever they are. The wonderful Hueti Haile Selassie, communication specialist, daughter of the diaspora and grief conversationalist. Do you have an interdisciplinary life? Because I would love to hear from you. And maybe we can chat in this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is called Have You Thought About? It can be found via www.drutishah.com. Please join me next time for a fun conversation with another guest who likes to mix up lots of things in their life. If you like the podcast, do share, rate and review. It's an independent podcast and if you find it helpful, then let the people know. Thank you to Reen Shah for the music.